I'm Rebecca Rothstein, and along with my co-host, Leanne Daly, we'd like to welcome you to Say It Forward. Each week, we'll be doing one of my favorite things to do, and that's interviewing interesting people with out-of-the-ordinary life stories. They're all people who took a different path in life. Some never imagined the heights they would achieve, and others, well, they turned their childhood dreams into reality. Sitting in with Leanne and I today is one of our executive producers, Kim Garner. So let's begin. Today we welcome William H. Macy into our studio. He's had a very prolific, successful, and diverse career as an actor, writer, producer, director, teacher, and social activist. He's appeared on the off-Broadway stages of New York City and Chicago and was one of the stars on the long-running TV series ER. He's a veteran of the independent film world with extensive credits in Hollywood movies like Fargo, The Lincoln Lawyer, and Boogie Nights. He's a multiple Emmy Award winner and started two theater companies, one of them with legendary playwright David Mamet. He and his wife, actress Felicity Huffman, have one of the longest-standing partnerships in Hollywood, and he stars as the lovable but hopeless alcoholic Frank Gallagher on the much-loved Showtime series Shameless. So let's rewind to the beginning and say it forward with William H. Macy. May you please start by telling us which the H in William H. Macy stands for? Hall, H-A-L-L. I'm a junior. My dad was William Hall Macy, and I'm junior. And uh, Ms. Hall was my grandmother's Sunday school teacher. No kidding. That's what I heard. <laughs> That's a fantastic story. She was story. Episcopalian. Where did you grow up? I was born in Miami, Florida, raised in Atlanta until I was about nine years old, and then moved to Cumberland, Maryland, which is in the hills of western Maryland, close to West Virginia, right on the border, two and a half hours from D.C. In the old days, now it's three and a half hours. And I went to high school there, and then I went to college. I went to a little liberal arts college briefly, and I wasn't cut out for college. So then I transferred to Goddard College, which is a hippie college, and uh, my salvation. No tests, no grades, no rules. My kind of school. (laughs) It was a great school. You had to pay tuition. That was a rule. But there weren't any others. What did you do? Well, for about a year, I chased women and got high. And then a guy who had graduated from there named David Mamet came back as a teaching fellow. And he changed my life. The writer, director, Republican. And um, he's the smartest guy I know. And he taught me everything I know. He gave me my aesthetic. Didn't you want to become a veterinarian? And then you fell in love with acting? What was that? If I'm going to be truthful, it's that I realized I couldn't be a veterinarian because you actually have to go to school for that. And I just had a terrible time in school. My daughter has some learning issues. She's seriously dyslexic. And in filling out the paperwork Mm. for her, I realized, well, I recognize this person I'm talking about. It's me. And I think I was undiagnosed as having some learning disability in high school. So I refused to do it. I just didn't do it. And they graduated me for reasons I still don't understand why. So I got a job when I was 14 with a veterinarian, and I was good at it. And he was a great guy, a small animal practice. Every once in a while, we'd go out and do cows and horses. But I realized I was really good at it. By the time I left there, I could diagnose these animals as they came in. And he offered me a job. He thought I was good at it, too. I actually helped him with surgery. I learned how to stitch and things like that. I was 15. (laughs) Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And um, Did he pay you? He paid me handsomely. I was a rich kid in high school. I was the guy. I was the date, man. I could could take you to Pittsburgh to see a concert if you wanted. (laughs) 
And were you acting at the high school? Actually, I got into the business because my brother Fred, who lives in Pennsylvania and who is retiring soon, Mazel Tov, Fred. And uh, he went away to college and came back playing a guitar, and he was pretty good at it. And he bought himself a big Martin Dreadnought, and he joined a group of folk singers in college, and they were successful. They were touring all over the place, the height of which was a huge USO tour. They were gone for about 10 months, and he just loved that. Anyway, he taught me to play guitar, and he also taught me some very filthy songs that he sang. And there was a talent show at Allegheny High School, and as a sophomore, I entered the talent show, and I played this off-color song, and I was famous from that point forward. <laughs> Can you sing Do You Remember, <laughs> please? The punchline is, your papa ain't your papa, but your papa don't know. <laughs> And uh, all the variations wow. on that you can think of. <laughs> did you write the song? I did not. It's okay. uh, it was. I don't know who wrote that. Kingston. That's a Trio great line. Your papa ain't your papa. They changed the rules of <laughs> talent shows at Allegheny High School after that. They said we have to vet these things before people. <laughs> That's fantastic. I love that. You worked story. blue. That was your first sort yes. of foray into the business. Was oh my blue. god! And the student body. I was this shy little kid, and they were eating their young, as Dave would say. They were wild. They loved. The song so much and it was a high school talent show it, it was pretty somnambulistic up until that point and they were just beside themselves and i liked it i never got over that feeling so as an acting part of it or as a musician performer being on stage having people mm. applaud that way making people laugh there's no greater high in the world than making people laugh can we go back to David Mamet? You said that he had a profound impact on you. Can you expand on that a little bit? To synthesize it, he taught me how to act. He gave me an aesthetic, and he's the first guy that said it's an, a noble way to make a living, that the task of the actor is to tell the truth, mm. and it's an honorable profession. How serendipitous that your paths crossed. Well, my whole life has been that way. One of the gifts Dave gave to all of us in that original class was the notion that you can make your own fun or you can sit around waiting for the phone to ring. And um, for an actor, that's a horrible thing to be doing, sitting around waiting for the phone to ring. He said, make your own fun. And that translated into, if no theater wants to hire you, make a theater. If you can't find a play, write the play. If none of the directors are returning your call, you direct the play. So we took him at his word. I certainly did. And every time my career would tank on one thing, I'd, I'd say, okay, well, I'm a director now. I'm no longer an actor. And inevitably, I'd get work. Not many people know this, and actors strangely do not wish to speak about it because it speaks of the supernatural. But if you really need a job in this business, just buy yourself an expensive, non-refundable ticket for a vacation. You will get a job. The phone will ring within the week. <laughs> so, so Dave was the biggest practitioner of that, especially in the early days. And we formed a bunch of theaters. One of them was called the St. Nicholas Theater, which is ironic because St. Nicholas was the Russian patron saint of actors and pawnbrokers and prostitutes. So, so much for his thing about a noble profession. But we started that in Chicago and it was wildly successful. We uh, took us about three years to find a place. We committed fraud to rent this building. We committed <laughs> larceny to find seats. It was insane. But the first play we opened there was American Buffalo. So we were off to the races. And the first four plays we did at the St. Nicholas Theater in Chicago were all runaway hits. You had to know me to get a ticket. Wow. So it really started my career with a bang. How'd you get money for that? 
Well, first, the traditional way. We wrote to all our parents and friends saying, please send them some money. My mother, God rest her soul, her mom died, and she inherited a little money, and I mean a little money, uh, 25 grand, something like that, and she sent it to us. Mm. Wow. I couldn't mm. believe it. So beautiful. And we had just had this big fight because we had done a play that just tanked. It was a Eugene O'Neill play. We lost all our money, and we were fighting, and we decided to part ways. We being Stephen Schachter and Patricia Cox and Dave Mamet, and we were the ones who were the St. Nicholas Theater. And then this check comes in the mail. <laughs> we had to spend it. So we did one more play. So you and made that up. was American Buffalo. Oh, man. Wow. We found a warehouse that had been a printing company, and it was for lease. And we went in, and we said, we want to lease the place. And this guy said, you know, how are you going to pay for it? I said, we're going to build a theater. And he said, oh, good. He said, I need first and last and a big fat deposit, which came out to 20 grand or something. We said, check. And he said, you're foolish. He rented us the place. And then Greg Mosier, who ran the Goodman Theater, had done a small production of American Buffalo that ran for four weeks. And it was a huge hit. And they had to move it. And we said, well, we'll move it to the St. Nicholas Theater. He said, where's the St. Nicholas Theater? I said, it's on Halstead Street. We just got it. And it was an empty warehouse. So off we go. We started teaching classes and John Mahoney, who recently passed away, was in that those early classes. I think I taught him. And that was some money. And then I'm a bit of a carpenter, so I led the charge on figuring out how to do things for nothing. We went to every hardware store and said, what paint has been returned? And I got 800 buckets of paint. We dumped them all in a big garbage can, and it came out sort of a, <laughs> I don't know, a violently sick brown or something like that. And that's what we painted the theater. Um, <laughs> you can't make this shit up. Oh, my God. And every designer who came in, they would go, oh, that's that was their first take on the thing. Oh God! Uh, and once we had successes, they said, "Paint the place." I beg you, paint the place. I'll paint it. Just buy the paint. I went to a junkyard on the south side of Chicago, and I found these seats. They were out of a high school. They were basically wooden chairs that were tied together, either four or six in a row. And they folded up, and I bought 150 of them, 180, because a lot of them were broken. And I wrote the guy a check, and it took me three trips in my van to take them all back to our apartment in Chicago. And then I called a guy on the phone, and I said, hi, it's Bill Macy. That check that I just wrote you, um, that's going to take some time. To, he said, you motherfucker, I know where you live. I've got, I'm going I'm to come give you... You're stealing from a junkyard? Are you out of your goddamn mind, you little... And after he stopped screaming, I said, calm down, calm down. I will pay it. I'll pay it, man. I will pay it off. And I did. We did. We paid it off. Wow. Took about four months. And that guy ended up coming to all our plays. He was <laughs> charge him or did he come for free? No, he came for free. There was also a guy that acted in all our plays. He was also an excellent electrician. And we always just needed him in every single play wow. <laughs> until the place was wired. You, were you in your early 20s then when this was going on yeah single footloose fancy oh, free working 12 hours and sleeping four and going back and working oh. 12 hours and then we were a hit sounds like the time of your life right oh my god i was smart enough to sit in the bar and say guys these are the good old days right yeah. talk about serendipity yeah. i uh, you were talking about recognizing it uh, i said it, it might be a long time so we're sitting mm-hmm. in the catbird seat like this so when you look back now with all your success it sounds like that that time in your life when you were scrappy and having to make it happen is like one of the oh, God. best times of your life yeah struggle struggle yeah. makes us happy work makes us happy especially if it's if it's got success tagging along People who are as successful as you are are very smart people. Not smart necessarily in science or, you know, things obviously that are outside of your field, but the intellect that it takes to do what you did is profoundly deep. 
there's a part of me that wants you to hold on to that cherished view of <laughs> this business. <laughs> there's another part of me that wants to tell you, oh, my God, a lot of actors who are dumb as a bag of hair, and they're brilliant actors. Sorry to say this out loud, but you don't have to be very smart to be an actor. As a matter of fact, I think sometimes being smart is a detriment to being an actor mm. because the actor's purview is so small. It really comes down to sometimes seconds that we concentrate on. We will sometimes spend a month concentrating on what we're going to do for those three seconds. And when those three seconds are done, you move on to the next three seconds. But it's little, it's very controlled, and the increments of labor are very, very small. And they're separated by a lot of waiting mm -hmm. and preparing and sometimes if your imagination is too great or if your drive is too great or if your intellect and your knowledge is too great, it's really hard to only do your job. You start directing the play while you're supposed to be acting it. You start wanting to rewrite it. You want to produce it. You're doing everybody's job except yourself. And those people are known as jerks in mm -hmm. our business. When I say you don't have to be smart to be an actor, I'm, I'm saying it's not a prerequisite. There are a lot of brilliant actors. But there's a wonderful career to be had by being a journeyman actor. You kind of have uh, two or three tricks. You do that role over and over again, right. but you're a great actor. You don't have breadth and you don't have a lot of ambition. I know a lot of guys and gals who have had a life in the theater and they're pretty good. They're always pretty good. You can count on it. And they put their kids through college and they've done it by acting in plays. And they're not the sharpest candle on the cake, but they're solid. At the same time, there's the most dazzling minds in the world in this business, too. So what would you say makes a great actor? The word that always comes to mind for me is vulnerability, like you just have to be in it and be vulnerable, or maybe that's not the case. Vulnerability is seductive for an audience. That's a good thing to have, but there are a lot of roles that aren't about that. And if you're going to have a big career, you've got to be able to play a lot of different things. Vulnerability, yes, but not giving a shit, that's a great quality to have. That's a great quality for any actor as the as the person to have, too, to say, I'm going to tell you what I think is true. I don't care if you like it or not, because it's hard not to, when you're performing, not to fall into wanting to please. And the only way you can please the audience is to dedicate yourself to not caring whether you please them or not. I think the ability to concentrate a whole lot for short periods of time, but it is intense when you're acting. It's, it's intense. The demands on you, they sound silly, but the whole notion of learning lines and then saying them back as if no one's ever said them before, and you're making it up as you go, and it sounds like real conversation, and you're not listening to the words, you're listening to where the actor's going. That's a skill, and it requires that you learn the lines in a particular way. That you've got to know them really, really well. Otherwise, you're going to take a little bit of your brain power away from that kind of concentration and dedication to what you're doing, and you have to think about, what's that word, what's that word? And every time you have to think about something besides what you're doing, it takes away your energy, and then you combine that with... The exigencies of the stage, you got to talk abnormally loud. you got to cheat out all the time. In a film, there are so many people pulling on you. Uh, keep your chin up a little to the left. That's your light. Could you hold the cup in the right hand? Give me a couple of seconds before you say the line so that I can, uh, you know. I was acting one time, and everyone had given me a note, and I said, 
Anybody else want to uh, <laughs> give me an assignment here before I do Craft this half page monologue? Uh, so my point is you have to be able to marshal your forces, do everything that they want you to do, but still have the brain power to concentrate like you got to concentrate to make it sound like nobody's ever said it before and you really mean it. And the only reason you're saying it is because you have some goal in mind, even if the audience doesn't know what it is. It's a skill devoutly to be wished for. And uh, getting back to being smart or dumb, sometimes if you're not a deep thinker, that's a little easier for you, you know, because you go, oh, I just have to do seven things. And sometimes if you are a deep thinker and um, wizardly fast, you have to have the dedication and the stamina and the discipline to turn your brain off and only do those six things that you have to do here and not worry about all that other stuff. That takes, that's, that's a, beyond that's some That's an people. acquired skill. That's an acquired skill. Mm-hmm. It feels like you would get better with age and experience. You totally do. I had a great experience in Chicago. We were very xenophobic about um, New York. Is that the right word? Uh, Chicago, yeah, 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 yeah. Who needs New York? Yeah, yeah. And so I was a young actor in my 20s, and I was lucky because I was hired at the Goodman a lot, and that was the big show in town, and paid a lot, and a big theater, and uh, all the resources you need. And um, I got a lot of roles there, and then they'd cast the big roles in New York, and ooh, did that piss off us Chicago actors. But uh, I got to watch these New York actors up close, and... Uh, They were all older, and their skill was awesome. Even if they didn't have as much talent as perhaps other people did, their skill was awesome. They'd been around. Don't mess with these people, you know. (laughs) You want to upstage this actor? Think again, because he will bury you. There are some actors that are so good that you you could drop your pants and pee on the stage, and no one would look at you (laughs) because this actor's got their attention. Wow. Wow. let's, Let's talk about the fact that you're married to an actor. You are both super creative types living in one house. I'm a serendipitous. I found a soulmate who loves this business and storytelling as much as I do. We were both raised in the theater, and um, rather than being a, a bone of contention between us, we talk about it freely. I don't think she has a jealous bone in her body towards anything I've ever done. If I may say, I, I have not been jealous of her. I just I find her triumphs to be reflecting on me. And Ruth Bader Ginsburg's husband said the best thing he's ever done is allow Ruth to do what she did. We talk about it. We rehearse with each other. We see each other's work and we talk freely about it. It's not a good idea. Don't try this at home. We just got lucky. (laughs) You are profoundly respectful to each other. You don't overtalk each other. You don't discount the other person's point of view. These These are skills that you learn in a long time marriage anyway. But you both practice them, and I think it's a great credit to you and a great credit to her. You're exactly right. We practice them. I'm old and I have my limitations, but I'm not going to say it. Other people will say it, but I'm not going to give voice to it. Well, the same thing, we talked about it, and it's one of my firmly held beliefs that after you're 12, 13, 14 years old, nobody changes. That's it. We're cooked. And the only reason people change after that is if they have no choice, if it's such a seismic shift in the world that there's or such a disaster they don't have a choice but to change other than that no one changes except in very very small ways and i believe in words so we talked about it the concept of being a good husband just leaves me cold i don't know what it means but i can stand up when she comes to the table that i can do right that that doesn't take a lot of brain power and i don't have to change to do that i just have to remember it which in fact is one of my wedding vows to her 
that I would stand up when she came to the table. I wrote this poetical <laughs> bullshit wedding vow. And about two days before, I thought, I don't even know what this means. <laughs> this is just words that I strung together that sound like a wedding vow. So I gave That's her a so list funny. of things I would do. That was my <laughs> wedding vows. That's so funny. It was about as romantic as a shopping list, but I'm checking through them too. At any rate, getting back to saying it, we talked about a relationship and it's really easy for couples to start, oh, she's so this. Oh my and, God. And the great jokes, very great jokes you can tell at your spouse's expense and it's a slippery slope you and felicity are genuinely lovely to each other when i sit with you there's no question i got lucky but i think it's the actor in me getting back to your comment rebecca it's a learned habit and i think we have to learn those habits and i think it's the actor in me who says the little gestures which are accomplishable are so important because the big gestures in my heart of hearts, I, I don't think they're possible. We can't change ourselves. You know, your first impulse will always come out. You can't change it. It'll always come out. You don't have to act on it, but you're never going to change. You're always going to go to the same thing from the time you were a kid or very close to it. So the, it's the actor in me that thinks about, you know, wow, look at those shoes. You know, a guy that's dressed to the nines trying to sell you and he's got bad shoes. And you think, oh, my God, there's there's a crack in the armor here. I don't trust you suddenly. And so as an actor, I go, if you're ever in that situation, you know, wear the wrong shoes or wear worn out shoes. It says worlds about the guy. Um, I look for those things. And um, as a writer, I look for that little phrase that belies the whole character, that what the character has been selling and reveals the character because of some off-the-cuff remark. So the church tells us, have faith and it will be given unto you. And I, I think it's a variation of that. My philosophy is pick a couple of things that you can do that that type of person would do, and uh, pretty soon you'll become that kind of person. Uh, at least that's what the world yeah, will see, and it. it'll lead to it's, – it's putting out the – the good stuff, I guess. And, well, this um, is a perfect segue into what I want to also have talked to you about. It's that you wrote the screenplay Door to Door. I'd love to delve into the history of that and, and your path on that. Um, but you did this with some of your friends, or I think either one or two. Stephen Schachter and I wrote it. And you wrote this together. Can you and talk about that it. a little bit? Door to Door was a TNT movie of the week about a guy named Bill Porter, who was born with cerebral palsy and became a door-to-door salesman for the Watkins Company after being um, diagnosed as a kid as unemployable. And his mother was told he wouldn't live past 18 and he couldn't, he'd never have a job and yada, yada, yada. His mother would have nothing to do with that. So he got a job in the Watkins Company, which was a great story because he comes in all bent up with slurred speech and says, I want to sell door-to-door. And the guy said, I, I, he was, it's a lovely scene that we wrote, but it's a true story that Bill Porter said to the guy, give me your worst route. What have you got to lose? And by charm and indefatigable drive, he became the greatest top selling salesman ever. There was a a thing on uh, 60 Minutes, I believe, about Bill Porter. Somebody saw it and sent it to Stephen and me. Stephen Schachter and I were with Dave Mamet in that original class at Goddard College. And they sent the the news coverage of him and said, were we interested in doing a script on it? And we wrote it and um, went to meet Bill. He was still alive at that time. I don't play people who are living very often, but I copied him. I absolutely imitated him. And I, 
apologized in advance. I said, Bill, I'm going to imitate you because he had cerebral palsy and a speech and ears and all of that stuff. And so I, I had uh, prosthetics and all of that stuff to look like him. Plus, I went from, I guess the first time you see him, he's 18 or 19 or something like that, all the way to his 60s or 70s. So there was a little, it was a makeup show. It was really tough. It won all the Emmys that year for that category. Stephen won two. I won two. And it's shown a lot. It's really wonderful. I loved acting it, although, as I said, that was a challenge, man. Sometimes it would be five or six hours from the time I left the makeup chair until I was back the next morning. You can waive your call as an actor. And me and um, Charles Poirier, who did the the makeup and hair, we, we all had a pact. Anybody could cry uncle at any time, but... To get there, to get all the makeup on and get it all off and shoot a 12-hour day, we had to – I think we shot for 24 days and we waved our call 24 times. But what I was most proud of is that as we were trying to figure out how to tell his story, he – I told him. I said, you got no third act, man. You're still alive and you're doing well. That's boring. What are we going to do? And we didn't want to make up a bunch of stuff about him. And Stephen and I came up with, I thought, the elegant solution of he would be the constant and we would dramatize all the people he sold to. So we told three, we told three stories as Bill aged through the years and how they changed. And uh, we revealed his character through his interaction with these people as they went through their dramas. Oh, it was, it was so lovely. And you became national ambassador to United Cerebral Palsy. I worked with them for two or three years, and uh, Cheryl Hines took over for me. It's a great organization. I hope I helped a bit. I'm sure the film really helped. Well, that helped. And And we raised some money. He lived way longer than people who get that diagnosis live. Oh, yeah. He was 67 or something like that. And the Watkins Company stopped holding the contest for who sold the most because after the show, nobody could touch Bill. There's a Chiron that says, for tough cleaning problems, contact Bill Porter. And we put his (laughs) website on it. We thought it was so funny. (laughs) And then I thought, hey, someone should warn him. So I called uh, TNT and I called uh, the producers and I told Bill, I said, we put your website on there. You could get a lot of emails They said, no, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. That card came up and it crashed four seconds later. Oh, my God. And it took him four days to get back. And it took Bill six years to fill all the orders. That's amazing. Oh, what a story. So you enjoy playing these antiheroes that have, whether it's mental illness or disabilities. Did that sort of stem from working with Bill? And how does that manifest in your personal life now? Well, I'm a character actor, and for better or worse, I got I had success at playing sort of the loser, the white guy who's way in over his head, and uh, so I've been hired to do that a good bit in various variations of that. And door to door made me aware of the disabilities movement, everything from the you know the Disabilities Act all the way to the problems now and government, what government should do and what they need to do for themselves and uh, what people with disabilities want and things we can do better. So I did another film mostly because it was it was called um, The Sessions about a guy that had severe polio and so he grew up in an iron lung. To me, the way a civilized society treats those who need the help the most, that's how we keep score. Fascinating. You're right about what you're saying about the Disabilities Act as a, as a business owner. Every single thing now, all the doors are wide enough for wheelchairs. Everything has a ramp to well, let it's, them it's in. The, the bathrooms are big. And yeah, and, and, but, and it's strongly 
and strictly enforced. Absolutely. And it's such a joy to be able to say, yeah, proudly, we are completely adherent to the Disabilities Act and we don't even think about these things until they become in your face and you go, oh, yeah. It's one of my pet peeves these days. I, I find Americans are sort of depressed, although they're not really depressed. People are spending money and they're having a good time. But we dump on ourselves so much and I, I don't think we give ourselves credit. I remember when the uh, Disabilities Act passed and people suddenly uh, that had buildings had to put in rails in the bathrooms and municipalities had to dig up the sidewalks so that there wasn't a curb. And everyone, not everyone, but so many people pissed and moaned about government overreach and you look at it now and it was painful for a while but now it's a joy it Mm -hmm. makes it's why america is so great we did that we went from being so unfriendly to people in wheelchairs or on crutches to accessible i first time i moved to la i rode a motorcycle and i had this world war ii uh, (laughs) tank helmet i look so cool with my dark glasses but um 30 minutes out on the freeway and my eyes looked like meatballs i had to wash them out i mean they were just a mess they told me there were mountains in la i never saw them they would have 300 days a year when they said if you're old or sick or young don't go outside And then they wanted to reformulate the gasoline and raise California's emission standards to the highest in the nation. And I remember all these people saying, one, it won't work. Two, it's going to bankrupt the auto industry. And three, the American public is going to have to pay the price tag for the whole thing. And I just want to say to those people who are still alive, okay, asshole, look at the mountains. <laughs> right. You what about this? Right. What about now that last year we had 30 of those days where they say don't go outside instead of 300? You said it wouldn't work. Right. What do you say now? Right. You want to speak up about government overreach now? Well, I'm going to go back to cars, transportation. The big role that I always remember you for was the role of Jerry Lundegaard. There was, to me, never a, a better example of a white guy in over his head. Yeah. And a way of presenting that in exposition versus telling it. You know, you could just feel the sort of beneath the surface panic of that character. Mm-hmm. And it was such an amazing virtuoso performance. Thank you. It was a great script, too. Yeah. Boy, that Ethan Cohen, he can write. Ah, for yeah. sure. I just watched Big Lebowski last night. Yeah. I, I know. showed it to my 15-year-old. That won you an Academy Award nomination. No, a nomination. Yeah. Nomination, yeah. And it's an honor just to be nominated, as we all know. Yeah. <laughs> what's what's that like? That's to so get funny. a yeah. I mean, what's, what does it change? What does it what does it not change? What you move up a rung? No, five rungs. You go to the grown-ups table instantly. You're a player. You don't have to audition. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. You don't have to audition anymore. Interestingly, after you get something like that, it takes about a year or two before you f- really feel the benefits of it. But it's, it's a great idea for a career. I, I wish I'd done it earlier. How did you get that role in Fargo? Can't remember who was casting it. I was sent in to audition for The Detective. And Joel and Ethan said, that's really good. You want to... Um, you want to look at Jerry Lundergaard, go out in the hall? And I said, yeah. So I went out in the hall and I looked at the speech that came in. They said, that's real good. You want to come back tomorrow when you've had a chance to look at it? I said, yeah. I called every actor I know in L.A. They did shifts. I learned the whole thing. I, had, I was completely off book to do the whole movie just about by dawn. And um, I went back in. They said, this is really good. Thanks. And so I went home and I started waiting. And then I found out they were in New York auditioning. 
So I got my jolly, jolly Lutheran ass on an airplane and crashed that audition. I walked in. I said, I'm, I'm here. I want to audition. They said, no, you don't have to. I said, I'm coming. I'm in. <laughs> this is mine. <laughs> and I auditioned again. And this was such a bad idea, but I told Ethan Cohen, who had just gotten a new dog and was talking about it, I said, I'll shoot your dog if you don't give me this role. <laughs> that's, that's not a good idea for all the actors <laughs> listening. Don't do that. That's, Is so that funny. one of your favorite roles when you totally. look back now? Yeah, Totally. I wasn't described in the stage directions. It was a different looking fellow, but I just loved it. I knew how to do it absolutely instantly, and I knew it'd be big. I got to know you when you were on ER. Yeah. It was my first time ever seeing you, which you had a long career on ER. Well, I was there for the first, I think, five years at least. I was a recurring character. And John Wells runs that, and I'm still working for John Wells. It was a great gig. They would call me. I was doing a lot of features at the time. And uh, if I could come in, I would do an episode. And they were so cool with me, sometimes they would... um, I would go in and shoot two episodes in a day or two. They would hold the, the previous episodes' scenes open, so that meant they couldn't finish editing it and everything. And um, they paid me well. I did maybe six a year, something did like that. Did you become friendly with Michael Crichton during that time? No, didn't even meet him. I think he was on set once, and I saw him. So was Steven Spielberg, but I was too shy to say anything. Now, today... Let's talk about Shameless, which is one of my all-time favorite shows. (laughs) I'm an addict. (laughs) The best news for me is that I can watch it and stream it because I need to do that. (laughs) I can't stand watching it not that way. I I need my fix, so Uh I I stream it and, you know, we do two or three episodes in a a shot. So can we talk about that? I love the show, too. It's one of the – talk about serendipity, boy – the indie film market after the after the recession just went in the turlet, and uh, they weren't making many of them. And I was getting work, but not very much. And they were smaller, and so I needed to make a change. That's what I've always done. And so I'd never done television, so met with my agents, read a couple of things. I maybe had one or two offers for smaller things. And then John Wells called me, and like Fargo, I picked up the script and read it and called him and said, yes. And um, that's not true. I read the script, picked up the phone, called him and said, please, please, man, I'll <laughs> wax you your on car, I'll, I'll wash your floors, I'll do anything. And um, I think Woody would be okay with him telling this story. But after I got it, I was so happy because uh, I'm pretty good at reading scripts. I, I know if they're going to work. I think I have relatively catholic taste and i it, when i go crazy for some script i'm pretty sure a lot of other people are too and um anyway i'd gotten and i was um, a little trepidatious but very happy and um i saw woody harrelson and he said what are you doing and i said i'm gonna do this thing. and he went ah and the smile in his face actor to actor you know you know and he said okay so they offered it to you and he said yeah yeah he said did you see the british version i said yeah i did it's great and he said yeah it's great he said i couldn't do it any better than that i said yeah yeah and there's a pause i could and at the same time he said i think you could (laughs) (laughs) that's cool it's a great actor's moment wow oh that's so beautiful and And you want to know what i met david threlfeld who's in the british version and he plays frank And I had emailed him. I don't know how we started emailing him anyway. He said, I'm coming to L.A. And he was coming to Warner Brothers. And it's a labyrinth. You can get lost easily. And uh, he called me at the gate. He said, I just parked my car. I'm walking to your trailer. And I was like a 
it was like it was a date or something. I was I, I couldn't sit down. I kept walking to the door and looking, waiting for him. And it took a long time and he did get lost. So I'm pacing in front of my trailer and I look up and way in the distance, I see this guy and I know it's him. And it was like a scene out of Elvira Madigan. You know, I started walking towards him and then we're running towards each other. And then we embraced and I was so moved. And so was he. Wow. And we just held each other for a long, long time. I took him onto the set. He saw my trailer and I could tell him, go, ugh. You know, they don't get nice trailers in Great Britain like we do. And then he walked onto the set and saw a, a typical Chicago apartment and he went, what the fuck? This is <laughs> ginormous compared to Great Britain. And um, and then he would walk around and he would see an actor and he'd go, Debbie. He just knew who everyone was. Uh, it was a great that's so day. Cool. And we just, we talked about everything. What a role. What a show. What, what a, an unbelievable experience this must be. And David's be. version of it is so completely different than mine. How is it? I mean, on a film, you have a fixed amount of time you're making a film. You're in your 10th season now. What's it like year after year doing a series and being on that set? And I'm sure it's like family, everybody, after all these years. It is. It's a thing that really frightened me at first because um, there is a scenario where you do a show and it becomes successful and you hate it and the writing's dreadful and you're stuck in a hit. And the only thing you have to show for all your time is lots and lots of money. But actors, when they're on a show that's not too good, but the, it keeps going because it, it still has an audience, they turn this weird gray color. They don't look happy. It's sort of a truth. you know. I did it for the money. Once you get old enough, you realize there's never enough money to do something that you hate. But it didn't turn out that way. The writers are magnificent. Every season is shockingly good. Oh, it's mm. incredible. Just when you think there's nothing more they could come <laughs> up and not in this. And they do. And we're going back for the ninth season. And I think there might be a tenth, which is a good number. I like ten. Ten's good. And I learned a lot about acting because I get to do it every day. That's one of the great gifts. It's the 10,000 hours, you know, the, the outliers. I spent a lot of time under imaginary circumstances, but a lot of it has been on stage and especially big features. You're waiting. You're, you're waiting an hour for your 60 seconds to work. And um, on television, particularly on Shameless, we shoot 60 pages in seven days. It's twice as fast it's as aggressive. some other TV shows. Aggressive. It's very aggressive. aggressive. Mm. And it's a caution, boy. It's it's hard on the crew. But for me, for the actor, they call me and I get to act all day, which I really like. I really like it. I know some actors who actually don't like the acting per se. They're glad when it's over. They like other parts of the business. I, My favorite part is when everyone gets quiet and it's my turn to talk. I like it. I like it a lot. Do you have time in your life to do films in a TV schedule like that? Can you do outside projects? We work for six months, so I have six months off. So in theory, yes. But I started directing. I directed three films in a row, and that took up the whole year. So for four years, almost five, I was working too hard. I missed all the vacations with the family and all that mm. stuff, and it turned me into a monster. I lost my will to live. Mm. Turns out maybe I'm not supposed to be a director. I it, it's, or it's certainly not a director of really low budget because it's just too hard for me. You got to roll with the punches, and that's not my strong it, suit. It's it's just so hard to get the quality that you want to get from a production value, from a time perspective with the actors. You don't always get yeah. rehearsal time, which is probably something you cherish as a stage totally minded actor. Yeah, it's you finish the film and you can't say this is what I 
wanted to do. You, you can only say, this is what I could survive. <laughs> is it gratifying today as an actor to see all of the new areas of distribution that there are? So it would appear that more people are working and yeah. more product is coming out and there's so many places to go. Uh, what do you think about that? I think you're correct. There's a ton of work. Everybody's working. The studios are packed. There's so many uh, networks, so many TV shows, so many such need for content, as they call it. And it's good. It's good. People who've not had a shot are getting a shot. Stories that never would be told are being told. In the old days, you needed 20 million people to tune in or they take it off the air. Now right. you, a million, a million will keep a show on and working. So we can tell some very specific stories for a specific audience and they're great stories and they're good for the world we get to walk in somebody else's shoes and it's weird what the public responds to and on that note thank you so much for coming it was great interviewing you and talking to you thank really you. appreciate your time thank you i had a great time thank this you so much it was fantastic Next on Say It Forward, you'll hear the compelling story of an American warrior, Navy SEAL, Marcus Capone. After college, he enlisted in the Navy, was accepted into the elite Navy SEAL program, and soon wound up on SEAL Team 6. Capone served with valor for 13 years as a war zone breacher and an expert in close quarters combat, advanced explosives, personnel security, and a driver in heavy combat, all skills that he employed on secret missions he still can't reveal. Five combat awards, two bronze stars, and 45 additional military medals later, he turned his 13-year deployment into a career as a TV star and founded Vindex Group, a physical and cybersecurity company. So join us as we go deep inside the heart and mind of this incredibly brave American hero on the next Say It Forward. Thanks for listening to Say It Forward. Help us grow by subscribing to our podcast. Please subscribe on iTunes or at www.sayitforwardpodcast.com. Don't forget to rate and review us on the iTunes store or like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. 